0: Funding for Here and Now Anytime comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at mathworks.com.
1: Hi, this is Here and Now Anytime, where we give you a little news, a little something you weren't expecting, and always a fresh, in depth perspective on current events, arts and culture, and stories that matter. Subscribe or follow to get all our episodes out every weekday and if you like what you hear tell a friend about us to help spread the word. Now here's the show.
2: Israel does not want a to ceasefire today or next month or probably ever and and of course that means prolonged conflict.
1: There is no end game for Israel's war in Gaza. And so far the US hasn't done much to find one. Thursday, January 25th, and this is Here and Now, Anytime, from NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, what's the future for Gaza after the war ends? And some states are jailing parents, usually single moms, whose kids miss too much
3: school. The parents and the kids often are trying the best they can in the circumstances of their lives, and punishing them for that won't get them to school more.
1: Criminalizing truancy, coming up in about 15 minutes. But first, the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston is a leading cancer treatment and research institution. It's affiliated with Harvard. But this week, Dana-Farber was accused of publishing studies with mishandled data. The whistleblower is a molecular biologist who blogs about research integrity He questioned dozens of Dana-Farber studies, and now Dana-Farber plans to retract six papers and correct 31 manuscripts. Angus Chen reported on this for our friends at STAT, the health and medicine publication. Here he is speaking to Scott Tong.
4: So the most serious allegations are of scientific misconduct. This is when a researcher intentionally alters or fabricates data in order to deceive their audience. If somebody does this, usually the point is to like try to fake or cheat some evidence to make their story or their hypothesis look more compelling. The four mm. scientists from Dana-Farber are co-authors on over 50 papers where these kinds of concerns have been raised. They have different types mm. of expertise, and these studies investigate the role of different kinds of proteins or genes and drugs or more in various cancers or cell types. Um, they really run the mm. gamut when it comes to cancer or scientific research. Two of these researchers are multiple myeloma experts, so a lot of the papers are related to that cancer.
5: Mm. And for the record, uh, Dana-Farber says it's reviewing dozens of studies. Has it admitted any willful misconduct?
4: The investigation that Dana-Farber is doing is still ongoing, so we won't know that until they reach a conclusion. We actually may never really get to learn what the investigation comes up with because Dana-Farber told Mm. me and my colleague that they don't disclose the results of these investigations publicly. I guess people are free to mm. draw their own conclusions if someone gets let go at the end of this. But I, you know, I can say that some of the authors on these papers, including some from Dana Farber, have already begun responding to the allegations online, or at least some of the concerns online. In some mm-hmm. cases, the scientists have said, you know, hey, um, what you pointed out here is correct. We did make a mistake. We got the wrong photo, or we posted the wrong data um, uh, by accident. But here's the right one. Like, le- let me show you our raw data, and we'll issue okay. a correction.
5: Mm. Uh, And and let me ask you a little bit more about images, because that seems to be at the center of some of these allegations that the scientists cut and pasted images, that they engaged in what's called image manipulation. What does that mean?
4: So there's a lot of biology studies where you might take a photo of something at the end of your experiment. Like it might be cells under a microscope or like some kind of blot or bar on a gel or a membrane that confirms the presence of like a specific protein. These images are proof of your experimental result. And if they support a certain hypothesis, then you can triumphantly put them in your paper and say, hey, look, we found this protein and we think that's really important. But sometimes no blot shows up at the end of your experiment. And when that happens, sometimes somebody could take a photo of a different blot and Photoshop it into a place it wasn't supposed to be. Basically saying, hey, we did this experiment and we got this result, but that's actually a lie. And if this is done intentionally, then it's fraud. Mm -hmm. But... There's a lot of examples where this can happen completely by accident. Uh, a lot of the time scientists are working with like dozens or hundreds of different images in a file. And a lot of them can look really similar. So I think the reason why we see so many of these these papers now is because there's image analysis software that's really good at picking out when things have been copied and pasted.
5: AI, yeah? Yeah. Uh, Angus, for people who are shaken by this, who say, listen, this is a top cancer institute looking at 31 studies you know, who are, are questioning cancer research in general and wondering if this prestigious place engaged in willful misconduct, it sounds like those people might not get a clear answer of what actually happened. Yeah?
4: I think that's true. And if you're worried that like Dana-Farber being one of the best cancer research institutes in the world and one of the best places to get treated if you have cancer yourself, and you're thinking, oh my God, what if they've done this sort of horrible thing, I think it's important to remember that the actions of a few people don't necessarily reflect on the institution on a whole. And it may also not even reflect that much on your quality of care if you're worried about that as a patient. But if you can take anything away from this so far, it's that many of the researchers have already stepped forward to say, you know what, we did make a mistake. You're right. We didn't catch it at that time and we should have. But we're taking steps now to do the right thing. Um, Mm -hmm. Seeing that people are doing that already, like Dana-Farber, they've said that their priority is to correct the scientific record. And on that regard, they at least need to be taking action.
5: Okay. We've been talking to Angus Chen. He is cancer reporter with our editorial partners at STAT, the health and medicine publication. Angus, thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
1: Coming up next, getting a ceasefire in Gaza is a matter of life and death, of course. But after the war ends, there's another existential question looming. What future do Palestinians have in Gaza, and who's responsible for securing it? Scott Tong has more after the break.
0: Support for Here and Now comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Following the science to unlock innovation and pursue sustainable answers that put patients first. That's the Takeda way. Guided by a commitment to patients, its people, and the planet, Takeda proudly continues its centuries old purpose to pursue innovative healthcare solutions and discover life transforming treatments with the power to make the future better and brighter for everyone. Learn more at Takeda.com.
5: In Gaza, the Israeli military confirms it is building a buffer zone that is a half mile wide space along the border. This week, when 21 Israeli soldiers were killed in an explosion, they were building this zone, which the Israeli military says is needed for improved security in southern Israel. But it is hugely contested by the U.S., among others, and is part of a broader debate about what's next for Gaza. Joining us now is Khaled El-Gindi. He directs the program on Palestine in Israeli-Palestinian affairs at the Middle East Institute. Khaled El-Gindi, welcome back. Yeah,
2: it's good to be back.
5: Can I ask about the buffer zones. Israel has confirmed that it's building along the border with Gaza. Israel calls it a layer of security. The U.S. is opposed. Human rights groups note it means destroying people's homes and farms in the process. Your thoughts on this new development and what it means?
2: Well, the buffer zone is actually something that uh, Israelis have been wanting to impose on Gaza for many years. And now that they are uh, back physically inside Gaza, they have the opportunity to to do it. It's something that the United States uh, specifically, the Biden administration has said that would not be acceptable uh, mm-hmm. because it would involve a reduction of the size of the Gaza Strip, which is already uh, quite small and densely populated, uh, and because of the destruction that it entails. It, you have to clear out you know, whole populated areas, uh, you, they've destroyed universities. It's clear that they are moving ahead, regardless of the fact that the United States has specifically said that this was a red line. And they seem to be, like most things the United States has asked of them, uh, mm. they seem to be just sort of thumbing their nose uh, at the Biden administration.
5: Well, this, of course interacts with the broader conversation about where Gaza goes and its people go from here. Uh, tomorrow, yeah. we're going to speak to you know, veteran diplomat Aaron David Miller, who says, any talk of a day after this war, in his view, is immature, is unrealistic. And he predicts a prolonged, low-level combat and horrific deterioration of conditions for the people of Gaza. Uh, your view? I think
2: that's probably an accurate prediction. I think I have the same analysis. Um, Israel does not want a to ceasefire today or next month or probably ever because it will want to maintain freedom of action to to be able to operate in Gaza whenever, however it it wants. And and of course that means prolonged conflict, and that will co- that will complicate any sort of reconstruction or rehabilitation or, or even humanitarian assistance to to the population that uh, has been completely devastated and and continues to to suffer at catastrophic levels so uh, yes sadly um, this is likely mm. to continue in large part because the United States is essentially acquiescing in in whatever Israel is doing
5: and, and in, in your view what should the role of the United States, B, how do you think about what leverage Washington may have here?
2: Well, Washington has considerable leverage, more leverage certainly than any other outside actor. This administration has not used that leverage. They have tried to appeal to Israelis to change course privately. They've been very unhappy with uh, with the direction that Israel has been moving, but have been reluctant to say so publicly and in fact have consistently provided cover politically and diplomatically uh,
5: mm-hmm.
2: for actions that even they oppose, uh, like the buffer zone. Uh, we heard Secretary Blinken talking about, well, maybe this is you know a temporary measure of transitional arrangements
1: mm-hmm. uh,
2: for, for security purposes. But... The United States could do much more and, in fact, could end this horror that we're seeing in Gaza if it chose to.
5: Of course, these discussions, these diplomatic discussions, are taking place, however realistic or not they may be right now. The Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu recently repeated his position that he opposes a two state solution, saying a Palestinian state would be an existential danger to Israel. His words. What are the implications if Israel maintains this position?
2: Uh, I think the implications are what we're seeing now. Violence, instability, conflict, uh, humanitarian disaster. The ultimate solution to this issue is not a military one, it's a political one. And the, the two-state solution right now is a matter of international consensus. Uh, but But it is not something this Israeli government is going to pursue. And maybe even a successor government, I think, would would also mm. reject the idea. Israeli politics itself is quite far to the right and has been hardened, especially in the last uh, three months. So we're likely to see more, more of the same. Uh, I think the real threat mm-hmm. is that we're going to see a major spillover into the West Bank, where... We haven't seen a huge explosion yet, but the level of violence by the army and uh, settlers has increased so dramatically that, uh, that could, we, we could see a major explosion in the West Bank as well.
5: President Biden has said there are a number of types of two-state solutions. In your view, what might a realistic picture look like? Who would be in charge? Who would deliver aid? Who would keep the peace?
2: Well, it's an interesting statement that the president made that there are different kinds of two-state solutions, and it's true. uh, But there's really only one kind that would work, and that is one that would involve genuine Palestinian freedom and sovereignty and self-determination. So there have been attempts, for example, the Trump plan— uh, in which uh, they call it a Palestinian state but but it is ultimately lacks any real sovereignty and would continue to be controlled by by Israel in almost every way. Mm. So if that is what the president is imagining could be a possible two-state solution, you know one that doesn't involve actual sovereignty and freedom for Palestinians, then mm-hmm. we're just repackaging the status quo.
5: Is there a picture of sovereignty that is emerging?
2: I mean, look. There's no. There's no question that there's a major problem on the Palestinian side. In that Palestinian politics are in disarray. Uh, they've been deeply divided. The the leadership in the West Bank uh, of Mahmoud Abbas is hugely unpopular. Uh,
5: of mm-hmm. the Palestinian Authority.
2: The uh, Palestinian Authority lacks domestic legitimacy. Um, it is corrupt. It is growing more and more authoritarian. Uh, and it's ultimately not representative of of Palestinians as a as a people uh, or their or their interests. So there needs to be a Palestinian um, kind of revitalization of their internal politics and political institutions. There's no question about that but that's an internal Palestinian issue uh, mm. and Palestinians need to put their house in order for their own sake and in their own way. Um, the, the risk is that Israel, as an occupying power, is going to try and re-engineer Palestinian politics uh, in ways that suit its interests, but that, you know, don't align with either a two-state solution uh, or, or with um, the goal of Palestinian self-determination. Uh, and, and based on this administration's record, they are likely to, to go along uh, with that sort of, you know, Israeli-engineered Palestinian mm. uh, local leadership of some sort, uh, that that will not be able to function properly because it won't have the legitimacy from the population of Palestinians.
5: And and just briefly circling back to the the current conflict, Israel has vowed, of course, to eradicate Hamas. Is it clear what that really means?
2: No, it's it's not been clear from from day one, uh, and I think most analysts, most serious analysts, have pointed out that that is not a an achievable goal, uh, and that it is only a recipe for more and more destruction and death, uh, which is exactly what we're seeing. Um, the Biden administration has finally come around to this conclusion um, that you know Hamas is not going to be uh, eliminated. Um, so the question is what should be the end game. What, how will we know when mm. the objectives have been reached if, if they're not achievable? And it really should be the United States telling Israel, you need to have identifiable, achievable goals that look like one, two, three, rather than this open-ended, vague, mm. kind of maximalist uh, aim that everybody knows won't be achieved.
5: You know, what are you hearing from people in Gaza for from leaders there about the current reality and where things go from here?
2: Everything that I hear from people in Gaza is, is really focused on the day-to-day, minute-to-minute survival and loss and trauma uh, of what's happening. There is uh, virtually, uh, I won't even say virtually, literally every single person I know in Gaza has lost dozens and dozens of of family members Mm. um, or separated from them or have been injured or have lost their homes, virtually everyone. And so the focus really isn't on the day after, but the next day, um, where can we survive? Where can we find food? The fact that Israel is heavily restricting uh, food and humanitarian assistance to Gaza is another part of this that has led to a, an entirely man-made humanitarian catastrophe.
5: Hmm. We've been talking to Khalid El-Gindi. He directs the program on Palestine in Israeli-Palestinian Affairs at the Middle East Institute. Khaled, thanks once again. Yeah,
1: thanks for having me. As always, we've got lots more reporting on the conflict, including perspectives from all different angles at npr.org slash Mideast Coming up, kids have been missing more school since the pandemic. By some counts, chronic absenteeism has nearly doubled. Everyone agrees that's a problem, but there's little consensus on a solution. As we'll hear after the break, some states prosecute parents for their child's truancy, and that creates plenty of problems of its own. Robin Young picks it up when we return.
6: Did you kill Marlene Johnson?
0: I think you're one of the first people to have
6: actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister, a woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case.
5: No, it's a botched case.
6: And a search for the truth, once and for all.
3: Wow, it just gets more interesting.
6: Beyond all repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Be careful.
6: You're digging in a place that's
2: been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Solgar. As people age, cellular function declines, which may impact changes in energy and strength. Solgar Cellular Nutrition is a holistic collection of cellular nutrients formulated to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Learn more at cellularnutrition.solgar.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
6: Since the pandemic, chronic school absenteeism, kids missing 18 or more days a year, has doubled. And truancy laws are back in some states. Now, For some, that brings an image of a cop with a kid by the ear catching him fishing. But these aren't kids cutting class, and it's parents interacting with police as states enact truancy laws. There's the Missouri single mom, Tamaray LaRue. Her five-year-old missed school for a doctor's appointment, then had a fever, then she had car trouble, couldn't take him one day, couldn't pick him up another, so kept him home. Same when his siblings had COVID. Fourteen absences in five months, which landed Tamaray LaRue in jail for 15 days. She's not the only one, according to the Council of State Government's Justice Center. A mom in Pennsylvania died during her jail time. But schools are trying alternatives. Professor Robert Balfanz is with the Johns Hopkins School of Education. And Professor, you say most kids want to be in school.
3: Kids want to be in school, but there are barriers and constraints and fears sometimes that get in the way. And then it creeps up on them because You know, people might miss a day here, a day there. If you just miss two days a month, every month, that's 20 days in a year, you're chronically absent. Right.
6: Well, this was recognized in 2015. There was the passage of the Every Student Succeeds Act, which started collecting data. The Department of Education started a program. And you realized, you and others looking at the data, first of all, it's not the same kids all the time.
3: Absolutely, right. And that's, and that's why for a long time this was under the radar because schools just ask themselves on an average day what percent of our kids are in school But it turns out you could have, you know, 90 or 93 or 95 percent of your kids on a given day. But it's different kids are missing on different days. So a quarter of your kids could be missing a month or more of school.
6: And you also started, you and others started to see in the data the reasons for this. This isn't kids going fishing.
3: No. Sometimes there's stuff that keeps kids out of school. Sometimes they have to work to help pay the electric bill or they're having to do sibling care or elder care. Another group of kids are avoiding something in school. They were being teased or bullied. You know, post-pandemic, there's been this rise of social anxiety. You know, kids got cut off from their peer groups. They were in fourth grade when the pandemic started. and Now they have to go back to a new middle school in sixth grade where they don't know anybody. Mm. And then finally, there are kids more in high school that think they can get by in the four-day plan, that they have complicated lives. Maybe they are working some. And this actually, you know, went up during the pandemic. Some parents lost their jobs. The teenage kids could get jobs in delivery services. They were the ones delivering your food and groceries.
6: That
3: yeah. when school came back to regular hours, many of them tried to keep their jobs. And so they might go to school for three days and work two days.
6: Right. Well, and then we can't help but notice that in the cases where schools have instituted, you know, not just financial penalties, but also jail, it looks to me like it's all single mothers.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. And in a way, it's, it's sort of criminalizing poverty, right? You're a single parent. You often have multiple kids in school, different schedules, different needs. If one kid is sick, how do you get the other kid to school if you have to stay with a sick kid? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, what we've seen is that if you take a problem-solving approach, if the school works with you, there, there can be solutions to solve those problems. The problem is in some places where they still have truancy laws on the books, it's just an easy fallback that like, well, it's the parents' responsibility to get kids to school, or it's the kids' responsibility to get to school. It's not the school's responsibility. But the parents and the kids often are trying the best they can in the circumstances of their lives, and punishing them for that won't get them to school more. It'll just punish them for something that's really like, if they had any choice, they wouldn't be doing. (laughs) Right.
6: Well, okay, so as schools started to realize all the things you're saying, a lot of schools started to have programs. Like Mobile, Alabama started the Helping Families Initiative
3: what they realized is, whether they thought it was fair or not, is that the schools had to be the ones to step up to help solve the problems that were the barriers and constraints were preventing kids to school on a regular basis. Because one, it's really important for every student to attend regularly because we know their outcomes are so much better. Mm-hmm. And two, once like 20% of kids are in a school are chronically absent, it affects the whole school because it means teachers have a different group of kids in their classroom every day. Yeah. And so they constantly have to say, Either let me remind you what we did yesterday and slow the class down, or if you weren't here, ask a friend, we're moving ahead, and then that might lead to behavioral disruptions and they'll still lose time. Yeah. So it's basically in school's interests, in many ways to take a problem-solving approach to increase attendance. And that's a new role, and, they, you know, they have to get, figure out how to do it. But many are finding that there are ways, that, you know, sometimes to... Get better transportation options.
6: Right, I love that you pointed out, I mean, yeah, schools are doing a lot now, and we need to support the schools more, especially financially. But you point out that, yeah, when kids miss school, of course they're falling behind, but they also may not be getting a free meal. They may not be getting some kind of mental health care, any guidance from adults.
3: Getting their annual eye exam.
6: Yeah, there you go. Well, I mentioned Mobile County, Alabama. At one point a year ago, the district attorney's office sent 53,000 letters to families warning about absences. Almost 500 cases went to court. You have to start to think, too, what's the cost there? But this year, they send social workers uh, to go speak with families. One of the things keeping kids out of school is it breaks your heart. Their clothes are dirty. Uh, You know, they come from homes that don't have washer dryers. Some schools are putting in—one principal said, I'm going to put in a washer dryer.
3: Right. Yeah, no, that, that's real. And then the other one to think about, particularly in the South, which doesn't often get cold snaps, they don't have winter gear, right? That means like standing out on the school bus in the morning, like freezing. So, you know, those are examples of those things that are just, you know, things that are solvable that get in the way. And then the really unfair thing about the truancy is that it's so differentially applied that it's it's really easy for kids and parents to get caught up with it and not even know it because, Some states have decriminalized truancy. Some still make it still a criminal offense. Even within a state where it's a criminal offense, it's really up to the school to be the one to report it. Some schools choose not to report it. Other schools report it because they feel like we don't know what else to do. And especially, right, with this rise of chronic absenteeism, a great number of schools that didn't have attendance problems before now have them. And they weren't really prepared for it. So Mm -hmm. it's easier to fall back on. Well, if there's a law that says you have to be here, well, we'll we'll let that take care of it.
6: I'm reading some reporting in the Washington Post about Knoxville, Tennessee. Dan Jenkins is the principal of a high school there. He says 15 years ago it was punitive. Now we want to help the kid and the family. And this is right. Anderson County Schools. And, you know, they contact students. They go to the home for home visits, see how they can help. Yeah. They installed laundromats in, in a lot of the schools. Yep. You know, this isn't a small thing if you're going to get bullied for... You know, wearing clothes that aren't clean, or if you are afraid to walk to school because you're going to get beat up on right. the way, we know though that in some schools still, kids are suspended for not coming to school. <laughs> it's just, right.
3: You Think know. how crazy that is, right? <laughs> that That was a normal right. You know, you're you're not attending school, so our solution is don't attend school more
6: well, but you did, because it's I, supposed
3: it, to teach you a lesson. It's supposed to tell you this is serious. You have to come to school. but that's assuming that most people aren't coming to school because they just didn't feel like it. We were all there as adolescents. There were days where that was true. But in the main, that's not the driving reason. It's very capricious whether you get involved in the legal system or not if your kids are struggling to get to school on a regular basis. The evidence is clear that it's not effective, right? So it's like, it just, people think it should work, but it doesn't work. And it's just very unevenly applied.
6: Well, in fact, there is a bias here. Because there are some kids of privilege— Who don't go to school because I'm going with my family on a vacation and they go. Where you have Tamarae LaRue, you know, who who was trying, you know, to juggle all the kids that she had. And
3: the crazy thing about that is that to be truant, you have to have unexcused absences. She could have gotten doctor's notes, but that's not, people aren't always aware of that. That's such a big deal, Right. right? Why won't they just take my word for it? My kid was sick and I don't even understand this changes the classification of attendance. Right. To your point of very privileged kids. Well, we're telling you ahead of time. we we'll are be away for three weeks. Make sure you give us all the work we need to do and we'll see you then. Yeah. <laughs> like,
6: well, and sometimes you can present a, a reason, as you just indicated, and it's not accepted. And t- we should say right. Tamarae LaRue is white, as are her children. But statistics from the Center for Public Integrity show American Indian, Black, Latino students are more likely than yeah. their white peers to not have absences excused and more likely to be referred to court for truancy.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that gets back to that, you know, the root of that bias is that, oh, some kids, some parents don't care. We have to make them care. It's just wrong. Like, it it, it actually is an inaccurate reading of the situation, and it's also really, like, not your role to be, like, the enforcer of you have to show you care more.
6: (laughs) Well, what's the number one thing you think schools that are, we know, overwhelmed, school districts towns, what, what's the number one thing they should consider?
3: It's really two things. One is to recognize if kids feel connected to school, they will be able to push through more barriers to get there. Being connected to school means you think there's an adult that knows and cares about you as a person. You have a supportive peer group. You feel at least occasionally you're engaged in a meaningful activity that might help others. And you feel welcome for who you are. Those are all things that are within the power of a school's to do. They can create environments that do that when kids are in have that environment it gives them they can push through some of the obstacles so that's one thing and the second thing is they they have to develop a problem-solving capacity when it is these real issues that are still modest issues that if somebody helps the parent they can be solved and that often means building partnerships with community partners again the school can't do it all they don't have enough people power to do all of this but they could create partnerships with other local nonprofits and even universities for like College work-study students are all kinds of ways to, you know, increase the people power helping do that problem-solving function to make it possible for kids and parents to come on a regular basis. Hmm. Basically, if a kid is chronically absent, you either have to change a behavior or solve a problem. And neither of those happen if you don't have a, unless you have a positive relationship with the person.
6: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor.
3: Thank you. Okay. It was my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
6: Robert Balfance of the Johns Hopkins School of Education.
1: Lots more on that and all our stories at hereandnow.org, but that'll do it for this podcast today. Here and Now Anytime comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Adeline Sear, Jill Ryan, and Karen miller medson Today's editors were Julia Corcoran, Todd Muntz, and Mikaela Rodriguez. Technical direction from Mike Moschetto and Caleb Green. Mike Moschetto also wrote our theme music, along with Max Liebman and me, Chris Bentley. Our digital producers are Allison Hagen and Grace Griffin. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carleen Watson. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribed or following this podcast. And we'll be back with you tomorrow. Spend time in any American city and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way for the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions? Listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and The Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network.